This hour, as we all learn from the movie Hidden Figures, history often ignores the stories of remarkable black women. Ever heard of Mary Lumpkin? Mary Lumpkin. For years, Mary Lumpkin was forced to bear her enslaver's children and then help him run his slave jail in Richmond, Virginia. When he died and left the property to her, Mary Lumpkin helped turn the prison into a school for black students. Ain't nothing like black women. And she helped to establish in the process one of America's first HBCUs, Virginia Union University. In this hour, the untold story of how Mary Lumpkin liberated the South's most notorious slave jail uh, in conversation with Kristen Green, who is the author of the brand new book, The Devil's Half Acre, the untold story of how one woman liberated the South's most notorious slave jail. I am honored to have Kristen Green on this program. Kristen, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Tavis. It's my great honor to have you. Thank you for the text. Uh, thank you for the time. And I look forward to this conversation over the next 60 minutes. There's a lot to talk about regarding one Mary Lumpkin, and uh, I'm just delighted to be in dialogue with you. Let me start with the obvious, at least for me, which is how and why uh, this story became uh, so important to you, Kristen Green. Well, I had just moved back to Virginia, the state that I'm from, mm-hmm. and I was working for the Richmond Times-Dispatch, filling in for another reporter when I was asked to cover um, an effort by activists to preserve a black burial ground in Richmond. And while I was working on that, trying to do some research to understand this burial ground, I realized that a slave jail had been located right next to it. Mm. And I didn't know what a slave jail was or a slave trader was at that time. But I was reading this story in the Smithsonian Magazine about work to uncover in an archaeological dig, the slave jail. And the article mentioned in just a short paragraph a woman who had been forced to live with Robert Lumpkin, the slave jail owner. And it mentioned that this woman acted, quote unquote, as Robert Lumpkin's wife, and that she had had his children, and that she had eventually turned this jail into a school. And I was totally captivated by that. Of course, I knew that she couldn't be his wife. She was a black woman, and he was a white man. They wouldn't have been permitted to marry. And I knew that she hadn't been able to consent. So I thought a lot about her and her strengths and her ability. She had also... There was also a sentence saying that she had um, educated her children and moved them to freedom. And those things really stayed with me because they weren't like any stories of enslaved women that I had ever heard. Mm. Um, what did you learn? Uh, we'll get into the story in a second here, obviously. We're already into it. But what did you learn about these slave jails? To your point, you never heard of a slave jail until you started researching for this particular story about Mary Lumpkin. But in the process, what did you learn about slave jails? Well, slave jails came about when the slave trade went from the transatlantic slave trade, which ended in 1808, and an underground um, but prevalent domestic slave trade, also known as the downriver slave trade, became more important, right? Mm-hmm. So I, what I had always learned in school was that after the transatlantic slave trade, the, the, the ending of the transatlantic slave trade was some momentous moment in history, right? Mm-hmm. And that I, I guess I had considered that to be um, something altruistic, you know, that's what I thought was happening. But really, no, <laughs> like this downriver slave trade was in fact much more awful. 
um, because it separated so many families, particularly from Virginia, right? Mm -hmm. So Virginia at that time had had stopped planting as much tobacco because they had robbed the soil. And so they had more enslaved people, the state had more enslaved people than it really could employ or afford to keep. And at the same time, the Lower South needed more labor. And so Virginia became a supplier, the main supplier for enslaved people for the Lower South. And so the reason that these jails came to exist was that people in Virginia would drive around, like slave traders would drive around on rural roads, offer to buy enslaved people from, from farmers who needed to make money or stealing them off of roads, you know, um, going to courthouse sales. They had all kinds of, of ways of acquiring enslaved people, and they would bring them back to Richmond to sell as um, enslavers from the Deep South came up to, to buy some. And so they needed a place to keep these enslaved people prior to sale. And then they also needed a place to keep enslaved people after sale, before a coffle could be put together and marched to the Lower South to their new homes. So the jails came about, you know, for that reason. And Robert Lumpkin, the owner of Lumpkin Slave Jail, was sort of a second-generation slave trader, slave jail owner um, in Richmond. And there were in the area where his slave jail was located, right on the edge of 95 um, in Chuckle Bottom in Richmond, Virginia. Um, there were, you know, dozens of slave traders operating and slave jails and all kinds of businesses that supported the business of slavery right yeah. in that same area. Yeah. Um, this conversation is necessary. And for me, I can't speak for those of you listening, but this conversation is necessary. And for me, these conversations can be difficult to have at times because um, it, it just uh, reminds me and you, I suspect, of the dehumanization of our ancestors. Uh, and that makes it difficult to navigate through some of these conversations. Um, but there are two thoughts that come to mind as uh, Kristen Green was sharing the story, the backstory of what, what these slave jails were, what their purpose was for, and how they came into existence. Two things came to mind while she was telling that story. Number one, uh, for those of you who have been to Africa and had the honor of visiting the slave castles. Uh, my very first visit was to the Elmina slave castle in Ghana on a trip to well, a trip to Africa with Maya Angelou that you've heard me talk about in my career, write about it in my book, My Journey with Maya. Uh, my very first trip to Africa was uh, carrying Maya Angelou's bags. I was just a kid and she took me to Africa. And when you stand in that door of no return inside those wet, and damp and dark dungeons that they called slave castles. Uh, it does something to your spirit and to your soul that I cannot describe. I don't have a language to describe what that feels like to stand in that door of no return. But standing inside that slave castle door of no return, you are you you see the conditions under which these persons, our ancestors, were held until the slave ships arrived to bring them to places and parts unknown. So she's talking about these slave jails. My mind goes back to Africa, to Ghana, and the comparison between the slave jails and slave castles is pretty, uh, pretty powerful for me. The second thing I thought about as we jump into this conversation with Kristen Green about the story of Mary Lumpkin is that we're talking about Virginia, and you may have just learned something, that Virginia was the state, the Commonwealth of Virginia was the state that supplied most of the slaves uh, or Africans who would become slaves Virginia was the supplier. 
they supplied more uh, slave labor to the South than any other state. And it just occurred to me, given that Mary Lumpkin was black and Robert Lumpkin was white, as you heard Kristen say earlier, my mind went to the story of the Lovings. You've seen the movie. This is the same state of Virginia where it was mm-hmm. the loving couple that eventually forced into law the fact that people could marry interracially. Just an interesting sort of connection of the dots I wanted to make here as we move forward. Mary Lumpkin could never have known. Robert Lumpkin could never have known that years later, that very same state, that Commonwealth of Virginia would be the place out of which we would have uh, case law. Uh, Virginia v. Loving. The Lovings won that case at the Supreme Court, uh, which decided that people, in fact, could intermarry. And so uh, fascinating history about the Commonwealth of Virginia. Our guest in this hour is Christian Green. Her book is called The Devil's Half Acre, the untold story of how one woman liberated the South's most notorious slave jail. That one black woman was named Mary Lumpkin. And we'll talk more about her when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. We've got a lot to talk about. Good thing we've got three hours. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Malik Books. I'm Malik from Malik Books, your community bookstore specializing in African-American books and gifts full of culture diversity. The total African-American experience that brings the world together. MalikBooks.com, your place to shop for books. MalikBooks.com. Malik Books is what you need. Interrogating your assumptions. And expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Kristen Green on KBLA Talk 1580. She is the the author, the fine author, of a powerful new book uh, called The Devil's Half Acre, the untold story of how one woman liberated the South's most notorious slave jail. I opened this conversation, uh, what, 18 minutes ago by saying that um, I love movies like Hidden Figures because they (laughs) remind us of the remarkable stories of black women that we've never heard of. And here is another story um, that uh, you will be aware of by the time this hour is over with with Kristen. It is a story of Mary Lumpkin. And so uh, I'm delighted to have Kristen on in this hour to unpack this for us. So, Kristen, let me I'm, I'm, I'm going to help navigate our way through this hour. I'm going to follow you. But let me start with this. Um, so what does your research begin? You told us earlier when I asked you, you know, how this became your story to tell. Uh, you told us how you stumbled onto the story. Tell me more now as we advance this conversation about where your research begins. Sure, sure. Well, um, I was hesitant to tell this story of Mary Lumpkin. Um, I thought it was super important because she is one of two million girls enslaved in the American South, right? And most of us only know stories of enslaved women who escaped. Women, you know, the one that comes to mind that I learned about as a child was Harriet Tubman. Of course. And of course, her story is remarkable, but it's not representative of most enslaved women um, because most enslaved women could not, would not leave their children. So instead, there are a wide range of stories of the kinds of lives that enslaved women lived. But I feel like as children, we are taught that um, the way we were taught enslaved women's stories are kind of combined to make one narrative, right? Mm-hmm. And so growing up, I feel like I thought about enslaved women as sort of a monolithic group. But in fact, they are individuals with their own unique stories. And to me, Mary Lumpkins was a really unique story. Um, And it was made especially challenging to tell because of the systemic erasure of enslaved women's stories, right? Um, White men and women made sure that they were erased by leaving the names of enslaved people off of important documents. 
denoting them with hash marks on plantation records. Um, Their names were not listed on the federal census. They separated enslaved people from their children and their parents and sold them to the Lower South alone, making their family ties impossible to trace. They often gave enslaved people new names to obscure their identities, and they prevented them from learning to read and write. So it made it impossible for them to hand their stories down the way that um, white men and women could. Um, And so the only way to hand their stories down was orally, right? Mm -hmm. So starting out looking for information about her, there was so little that it was really challenging. But I had these markers, right? I knew that her children, her two oldest children, were educated in Massachusetts, I knew they had gone to Philadelphia, and I knew that she was buried or had spent time in New Richmond, Ohio. So I had these markers that enabled me, and I knew that she had been at um, the Devil's Half Acre at at Lumpkin's Jail Mm -hmm. for a period of time. And so I started out trying to confirm who her children were, um, how long she had been in Richmond, and looking at the school in Massachusetts that her children attended, going to Philadelphia, pulling property records. Um, I used all kinds of scraps of information to try to pull her story together. I used census records. I used shipping records. I used, um, I untied the red ribbon that's from which government red tape got its name to reveal crumbling court documents. Mm. I read birth and death records, property records, wills, cemetery records, <laughs> uh, school archives. I used all kinds of newspaper articles and advertisements for um, Robert Lumpkin's jail. I used military records. And then I read narratives of enslaved women. And one of the really partic- um, particularly helpful biographies I read was Anthony Burns, an enslaved man who had escaped to Boston and then was recaptured and brought to Lumpkin's jail. And he gets a really amazing glimpse of life um, in Lumpkin's jail and the way that he was tortured there. I also traveled to Philadelphia and learned that she owned a home in her own name and was able to trace um, other women who were forced to have the children of slave traders who were also moved there with their children with slave traders um, around the same time Mary moved. So tracking all of this um, through using ancestry and building family trees, I was able to really build a timeline of her life um, in paired that against events that were happening at the same time, historic events, and then traced her descendants. You know, I found descendants of hers living in Oregon and California. Um, so I, this stone went unturned trying to um, yeah. tell the story of her life. And there's, there's still quite a bit we don't know about her, but I think the things we do know about her show just how remarkable mm-hmm. she was and how important it is to tell stories like hers. Yeah. You know, because the, the Harriet Tubman story, I think about as like a very masculine style story of escape. You know, she has a pistol on her hip. (laughs) She's wading through mud. She's sleeping under bushes. She's using the moonlight to guide her. And this, this is a different kind of story of escape. This is a story of a woman using her own agency to secure an education and freedom for her children well in advance of emancipation and to secure freedom for herself, you know, with nothing more than her own self-determination. Yeah. Um, We're going to paint a portrait of, uh, allow you to paint a portrait of Mary Lumpkin when we move forward in this conversation. But let me just pause for a second because, excuse me, excuse me, there's something I want to say to you right quick. Um, And I'm saying it to you, but I'm saying to many others um, who have done similarly. Um, But the nation owes, to my mind, uh, a debt of gratitude to researchers and historians like you 
who go through all the painstaking research that you just described. That's why I asked that question. I want the audience to get a better understanding of what it takes to write a book like this. I've written some 24 books, but I've never written a book like this where it requires this level of, again, painstaking research and travel. You have to be passionate, truly passionate about telling a story like this to go through all that one has to go through to bring this story to life, again, to paint a portrait of Mary Lumpkin. And so when you when you read the book and you you, you get all of this, um, I don't think oftentimes as a writer we really understand uh, all the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into making a book like this come to life. I quote my friend Maya Angela, who I referenced earlier, uh, and I'm cleaning this up for radio, but Maya used to always tell me, Tavis, easy reading is darn hard writing. Easy mm-hmm. reading is darn hard writing. And so when we read a book like The Devil's Half Acre and we see Mary Lumpkin sort of come to life and then you look up a few years now, a few years from now, there may be a movie and you are just excited and you love the movie as you love Hidden Figures. Somebody did the research to make that possible. And I want to just take a, a pause here to say thank you for all that you went through to bring this story to life. For those who don't understand, and they will when they get the book, uh, but since you referenced it, and I've, of course, quoted the title already, why is the book called The Devil's Half Acre? Let's explain that right quick, and I'll, i got some questions to jump from there. Well, sure. Um, well, Lumpkin's Jail was referred to as The Devil's Half Acre by mm-hmm. the enslaved people who lived there. I mean, it really was a horrific place. It was um, down in an area of Richmond called Chaco, Chaco Bottom, and Chaco Creek ran through the property, so it often flooded. It was a, it was kind of a big compound that had Lumpkin's Jail um, as as a huge part of it, but it also had a home where he lived, and Mary Lumpkin and the children likely lived with him. It had a place to um, house uh, visiting enslavers and visiting slave traders, and a place to feed them. He also um, made it part of his work to torture or punish enslaved people for a fee. So that was like, you know, he had, um, uh, what would you call them, like steel attachments on the floor where enslaved people could be tied down and flogged. So he really provided all the horrific elements of this of the slave trade and, and the uh, slave sales right there on his property. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it was surrounded by tall fences and tracking dogs. You know, it was a really disgusting, dirty place and with a really disgusting, dirty um, yeah. slave trade taking place there. And that's so enslaved people call it the Devil's Half Acre. Yeah. Now, I wanted to, again, want just people to understand why it's called the Devil's Half Acre. And now you understand. Uh, if black folk are nothing else, we are we are more than creative. Uh, and uh, these black folk who were forced to live there, they are the ones who termed it and called it the devil's half acre. Got to love the creativity, the narrative creativity of black people. Uh, but that's where that name comes from, the devil's half acre, from the people who were forced to inhabit this uh, very uh, nasty, ugly space. I'm looking at my clock here. I've got news, traffic, and sports in about two minutes. On the other side, we'll start to paint this portrait specifically of who Mary Lumpkin was, how she got connected to Robert Lumpkin, and we'll work our way up through her children being educated and the school that, uh, because of her work, got established. We'll get to all that on the on the back half. Let me ask you right quick, though, in the two minutes I have here now, um, you said a moment ago, and I'm not naive in asking this question, uh, and neither is our audience for that matter, um, but to your mind, as a researcher of this particular story, why were white folks so determined um, to engage in the erasure of the lives of these black folk? It's not as if history was not going to record 
that the institution of slavery existed. Uh, and yet mm. there was this effort, as you laid out very nicely, um, to erase any trace of story about these black folk. Can you answer that question for me in 90 seconds? <laughs> I could try. Yeah. I mean, if you think about Richmond specifically as the, you know, as the heart of the Confederacy, you know, it, after the Civil War, they erected these statues, these Confederate statues mm-hmm. to losing generals. Sure. Like the, the black newspaper here, termed at Loser's Lane, you know, like a whole street full of statues to Confederates. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think those things are really closely linked. They wanted to erase the harm done, even though they wouldn't necessarily acknowledge it as harm. Um, And they wanted to preserve what they thought was so important, right? Um, Their fight. You know, they wouldn't admit that, that the Civil War was fought over slavery, though it most certainly was. But they wanted to, you know, acknowledge and hold on to their white values. It's all part of yeah. white supremacy in my mind. Yep. Um, I remember the very first time I drove down Loser's Lane. I've been to Richmond many, many times in my in my life, home of the great uh, Arthur Ashe and the great Randall Robinson, a lot of great folk, uh, Doug Wilder, former governor of Virginia. Uh, Richmond, home to a lot of great African-Americans and a lot of black history. Um, I remember the first time I drove down Loser's Lane many years ago, and I could not believe all these statues erected to these Confederate uh, soldiers, leaders, if you want. Uh, and uh, fortunately, over the years, a lot of that's changed. Many of those statues have come down over the that's right. over the course of my life and um, uh, Kristen, uh, Kristen's life. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I remember that first drive like it was yesterday. When we come forward, we're going to paint a portrait of Mary Lumpkin as we talk to Kristen Green about her book, The Devil's Half Acre, the untold story of how one woman liberated the South's most notorious slave jail. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. We may be L.A.'s newest talk station, but when you're punching above your weight, it's not about whether you can throw a punch. Can you take a punch? We're unapologetically progressive. KBLA Talk 1580. And we don't black down. I'm Malik from Malik Books, your community bookstore. Specialized in African-American books and gifts full of culture diversity. The total African-American experience that brings the world together. MalikBooks.com, your place to shop for books. MalikBooks.com. Malik Books is what you need. We knew you'd stick around. This is LA's home for progressive talk radio. Welcome back to KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Our guest is Kristen Green in this hour. She's the author of the book, The Devil's Half Acre, the untold story of how one woman liberated the South's most notorious slave jail. That woman's name was Mary Lumpkin. Watching my clock here now, Kristen Green. So I'm going to pass the mic to you and ask you to paint a portrait for us of Mary Lumpkin. We've talked around it. Let's talk about it. Who was Mary Lumpkin? Oh, I'd be happy to. I just wanted to real quickly give Raymond Boone, the um, late editor of the Richmond Free Press, credit for the Losers Lane Mm -hmm. um, here in Richmond, Virginia. (laughs) Uh, Mary Lumpkin was born in Virginia in 1832. She was born decades after the transatlantic slave trade had been banned and that domestic or downriver slave trade had risen up. Um, She was enslaved by Robert Lumpkin, perhaps as early as 1840, when census records show that he had an enslaved child in his possession. She was likely the multiracial child of an enslaved woman and her enslaver, a relative of her enslaver, or an overseer. Um, She was described as fair-faced and light-skinned. 
At this point, it's unclear who her family was and whether she was sold away from all of her family or if perhaps she was sold with, you know, a sister or mother or father. It's just at this moment, we don't know. But we do know that she was in Robert Lumpkin's possession, certainly by 1845, uh, when at 13, she had the first of five children with him. Those children born to her were born enslaved, like her, because Virginia law mandated that the status of children would follow the status of their mothers. Um, and you can probably understand why Virginia changed the law from, from British law, which allowed children to follow the status of their father. Mm-hmm. If children followed the status of their mother, then fathers could not be held liable for paternity claims. And they also could father children and at the same time um, increase their slave holdings. So that's what, how they had arranged the law here. So because her children were born enslaved... That also meant that they were really vulnerable. Um, they could be seized if he, if Robert Lumpkin fell into hard times, mm-hmm. especially if he had used them to borrow other money, right? Um, but even if he didn't, they could be taken without his consent if he was overleveraged. So when they became um, nine and eleven-year-old girls, you know, about the age when Mary Lumpkin was being preyed upon by Robert Lumpkin. Robert Lumpkin and Mary Lumpkin worked together to to get their two oldest children, these daughters, out of the Deep South and away from slavery and move them to Ipswich, Massachusetts, to attend a female seminary. And they are identified by their name, their last name, in school records, but they're listed as being from Philadelphia. So I think by that time, plans were already underway um, to to move them to freedom. I think that Robert Lumpkin... um, you know, when he was living in Chaco Bottom, he was looking around at older slave traders who had made this decision to have families with enslaved women who couldn't consent um, and for whom they didn't have to provide as much as they would have for white women. Plus, their prospects weren't great for marriage because their profession was considered unsavory to some. Mm-hmm. So this was an easy way for them to have something that looked like a family um, but not to have to, you know, have the consent of a woman. Um, and so by 1856, you know, almost a full decade before emancipation, um, the two oldest children of Mary Lumpkin had moved to the free state of Massachusetts. And by 1860, all four of them, the oldest two, and then the next two that were sons, would be moved to uh, Philadelphia to a home that Mary Lumpkin managed to buy in her own name while enslaved in Virginia. Mm. Of course, she did that with the consent and the sign off of Robert Lumpkin. But the fact that he um, you know, allowed her to have a home in her name in Philadelphia means that he knew that that was the best way to provide for her and to provide for her children. Mm. I, um, mm. I'm thinking of a, uh the words of Dr. King, uh, MLK once said, there's some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. There's some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. I'm, I'm trying to, to decipher, trying to understand how I mm. think of Robert Lumpkin. And you see my hesitation, right? You understand why I'm, I'm saying this? Yeah, I do. Yeah. 
what's 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 I mean, your think, what's your what's your read on Robert Lumpkin? Well, here's the thing: he was clearly an evil man, um, mm-hmm. and their relationship cannot be described as a romantic relationship, as you know has traditionally happened in Virginia. I think that Americans really want to sanitize the abuse and trauma of slavery mm-hmm. and turn these kind of stories into love stories. They want to make Virginia enslavers, this is white people I'm talking about, want to make Virginia enslavers benevolent and kind. But I think it's an American pathology to take something deeply despicable and try to to make it romantic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just don't have a lot of models because these stories have not been shared widely. We don't have a lot of models to look at. And so I know that people look at Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings and want to make that romantic. And it really wasn't, you know. Um so I, I mean, I guess I, I defer to um, a black descendant of Mary Lumpkin, uh, Dr. Carolivia Haran, who's a professor at Howard University, who says that she doesn't think that he, he did this because he loved the children. I mean, it's possible that he did, but, but Dr. Haran says that she thinks that he did this because he wanted something from Mary Lumpkin, and Mary Lumpkin was negotiating with him. I mean, her belief is that when Mary Lumpkin was forced to have these children, the children became her priority. And she told Robert Lumpkin, the story she heard from her um, ancestors were that, that Mary Lumpkin told Robert Lumpkin, you can do what you want with me, quote, but these children have to be free. Mm. Yeah, so that's how I look at it. Um, I look at it that he was doing what Mary Lumpkin asked of him as part of their negotiations. Two Two things in response to that. Number one, um, I just paused because that answer that you just gave, the, the story you just told uh, about how her descendant views this relationship is arresting because it speaks to the the depth of love that black women have for their children. It is, uh-huh. and I, I don't uh-huh. have a, I don't have a language as as a recipient of that love from my mama. Um, I I know what that feels like, and to hear. Uh, her descendants uh, describe the depth of her love for her children. You can do what you want with me, but not my babies, not my babies. And uh, again, it just, um, none of us, um, I I said to somebody the other day in a speech uh, to a group of people the other day, in fact, that we are who we are because somebody loved us. Every one of us, we are who we are because somebody loved us. But when you get exposed, when you are the recipient, the beneficiary of that kind of love, where your mother does everything she can to protect you, no matter what is happening to her. It's just hard to hard to define and describe the the, the depth of that kind of eros, that kind of that kind of that kind of love. Um, the other thing I thought about um, while you were talking um, and answering that question is I'm really glad that you came the way you came. <laughs> I, my job is to ask questions. I never know where the, where the person is going to go with it. Uh, but I'm so glad that you did not turn this into a romantic love story. I said, please don't go there, Kristen Green. Please don't. My, my audience is going to be up in arms if you go the romantic love story route. Um, no, but I, I just no. teed it up to see what you thought of Robert Lumpkin. But I'm glad you, I'm glad you, you chose the right door. <laughs> Let's, put it well, that, Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Haran says that she pretends that 
quote, I am descended from her alone. Right? Yeah. She doesn't yeah. want to be descended from Robert Lumpkin. <laughs> but I think you're right. The protective nature of that relationship mm-hmm. was like it's something that really stands out for me. Yep. When we come forward, um, and again, I can't do justice to a book, this uh, a story this great, uh, a story this arresting uh, in 60 Minutes. Um, but when we come forward, I want to jump now to the end of Robert Lumpkin's life. You have some sense now of the way that Mary Lumpkin moved and operated with Robert Lumpkin. Uh, But at some point he dies. And when he dies, he leaves the property to her. And that's where, for me, the story really gets interesting uh, vis-a-vis what she did with that property that was left to her by Robert Lumpkin. The book is called The Devil's Half Acre, as named by the slaves who inhabited the space. The subtitle, subtext, the untold story of how one woman liberated the South's most notorious slave jail. We are delighted to be in conversation with the author of this book, Kristen Green, on KBLA Talk 1580. Be sure to like and follow Tavis Smiley at The Real Tavis Smiley. And get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues when we come forward. forward. Malik Books. I'm Malik from Malik Books, your community bookstore specializing in African-American books and gifts full of culture diversity. The total African-American experience that brings the world together. MalikBooks.com, your place to shop for books. MalikBooks.com. Malik Books is what you need. Less BS per broadcast. Fewer microaggressions per megawatt. KBLA Talk 1580. So Mary Lumpkin, uh, as we have a... Discovered and established in this conversation with Christian Green, author of the book, The Devil's Half Acre. Uh, We've learned that Mary Lumpkin was forced to have the children of a brutal slave trader named Robert Lumpkin on the premises of uh, his slave jail known as the Devil's Half Acre. Eventually, Robert Lumpkin uh, passes away. He leaves this property to Mary Lumpkin. What happens next, Christian Green? Well, I think she tried to sell it, um, and no one was really buying that property in this part of Richmond um, that was, you know, in the floodplain and had this terrible history. Um, so she ended up having a conversation on the street with a man named Nathaniel Culver, a white man from the north um, who was involved with the American Baptist Home Mission Society, and he had been, you know, working for many months to try to secure. A permanent location um, for the Richmond Theological School for Freedmen and found that white property owners in Richmond just weren't interested in selling or renting their property um, for in order for black people to be educated in Richmond. Um, and whether this conversation that Mary Lumpkin had with Nathaniel Cover on the street was um, planned by you know someone in her church um, or it was just happenstance. He did happen upon this. He came upon this group of women, including Mary Lumpkin, told them what, what he was struggling with, trying to find a place for his school. And she said, I, I think I can help you. And she ended up renting the jail to Nathaniel Culver and the American Baptist Home Society for three years. And they cleaned it up and ripped the, the uh, cell. What do you call them? The cell, blo- <laughs> the cell blocks. The cell blocks. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, and turned that property into a school for for black men to be trained as pastors and to get a general education. So totally transformed the property from the devil's half acre to God's half acre. Mm. God's half acre. Um, 
And what did what did Mary Lumpkin do? Did she remain in in Richmond on the property when she sold that space? What did she do? She ended up going back to Philadelphia, where all of her children had stayed after the Civil War ended. She, at the end of the Civil War, she came back to Robert, back to Richmond, back to the jail. I don't know if that was part of their, you know, agreement or she needed money or what exactly drove her to come back, but she did, and he died within a year and left her the property. She returned to Philadelphia with them temporarily and then moved to New Orleans where a good friend of hers, a a young woman, a young enslaved woman that she had met at the jail, um, who did work for her at the jail, had been taken to New Orleans um, by another slave trader, and she'd had a similar life to Mary Lumpkin's. Um, they remained friends all that time. And so Mary Lumpkin went down to New Orleans to be with her friend, who was also widowed by that time. Um, and from there, she moved to New Richmond, Ohio. I believe that she married um, an Army soldier, mm-hmm. probably a, a, a black soldier, um, and lived the rest of her years in this little town called New Richmond, which I just love that you know, it's named for the place where she spent all those years. Um, but it was a really cool little abolitionist town with a lot of women who had stories like hers, mixed-race women who had been forced to bear the children of their enslavers. You know, that, is, um, that is fascinating. She went from Richmond ultimately to a place called New Richmond in a different state, of yeah. course. Um, and at, at what age um, had, what age had she achieved by the time she passed away? She was 72. 72, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when we come forward in our remaining moments with uh, Kristen Green, we will talk about what she regards as the legacy, the ongoing legacy of one Mary Lumpkin. I can tell you part of it, and you've already figured it out. Uh, that land that she sold uh, to that Freedman School for black men to learn, be educated, to become preachers, turned into Virginia Union University. And that school, that HBCU, still exists even today. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. We don't try to be all things to all people. We just remain true to who we are. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Malik from Malik Books, your community bookstore. Specializing in African-American books and gifts full of culture diversity. The total African-American experience that brings the world together. MalikBooks.com, your place to shop for books. MalikBooks.com. Malik Books is what you need. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. Before I give uh, Christian Green the last word here in this conversation about the enduring legacy of uh, Mary Lumpkin, uh, just a little stuff that I know um, from my years of doing what I do. I didn't know all of this, but I know some of this. Um, I want to just put a final point on what she did uh, by making a wise decision to allow these black men to be educated on this property that turned it from the devil's half acre to God's half acre and the establishment of one of the first HBCUs, Virginia Union. These are some of the folk, thanks to Mary Lumpkin, who graduated from Virginia Union. L. Douglas Wilder, the first elected African-American governor in the nation. Samuel Gravely Jr., the first African-American admiral in the U.S. Navy. My dear friend, now gone, the Reverend Dr. Wyatt T. Walker, pastor of Abyssinian Church in Harlem, and chief of staff to Dr. King, Randall Robinson, founder of TransAfrica. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Simeon Booker, the first African-American reporter for the Washington Post. He was the bureau chief for Jet Magazine for 50 years when I met him. He's the one that took the famous picture of Bernice King laying on her mama's lap 
at Dr. King's funeral that won the Pulitzer Prize. Will Downing, the great singer, a guest on this program here and there. Dr. Benjamin Elijah Mays, the president of Morehouse, who was president there when King went to school there as a student at 15. And for those of you basketball fans, remember Charles Oakley? Oak went to Virginia Union. Those are all the people, just some of the people that went to Virginia Union. Mm. In the last uh, two minutes I have, uh, Kristen Green, just for my audience, I wanted to share some names I know would resonate with them that are all graduates of this great school because of Mary Lumpkin. But in, in to, to your mind, what is the enduring legacy of, of Mary Lumpkin? Well, I think her legacy is the legacy of her religious beliefs and her belief in education that allowed her to take the step to rent the building to um, to have it become a school, you know, and it was the that was really the footprint for what became HBCU, mm-hmm. um, became Virginia Union University. But I also think, you know, I think about her her resilience and strength and ability to survive um, words we often hear used to describe Black women. But she also had this legacy of resistance, and I, I find that to be really important because. Her resistance is different than the kind of stories we typically hear about enslaved women. Mm-hmm. But it was resistance um, nonetheless, and it was done through self-determination, right, and, a, yeah. and valuing education and freedom. And I also think her legacy is that her story is all of our story, right? Her story is our country's story. Um, and so I hope that, that our readers will see that, that yeah. you know, the, sto- the story of Mary Lumpkin is really the story mm-hmm. of America. Uh, it is a story of resiliency, a story of resistance, and that is the story of most black women that I've met in my life, resiliency and resistance. The book is called The Devil's Half Acre, The Untold Story, now known to you. It ain't untold no more to this audience, but it's called The Devil's Half Acre, The Untold Story of How One Woman Liberated the South's Most Notorious Slave Jail. It ought to be a movie. We shall see. The author of that book is Kristen Green. Kristen, once again, thanks for your hard work, your research to bring the story of Mary Lumpkin to us. And I appreciate the conversation. I appreciate your interest. Thanks so much for having me, Tavis. My great delight. Hour three of Tavis Smiley. When we come forward after news, traffic, and sports, you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580.